all things land development, planning and property. This is Property on Fire with Ian Walmsley. To find out how Ian can help you, visit propertyonfire.co.uk. Hello and a very warm welcome to this week's episode of Property on Fire. So what do we have coming up on today's episode? Well, Ian's A to Z of property returns and yes, believe it or not, we are still on letter A, even after several previous episodes. I'm going to be following up on my interview last week with Neil Briggs, that was on episode 23. And as usual, I'm going to have a look at some questions that have been sent in by you. If it wasn't actually you this week, then do please feel free to send those questions in to me and I will be delighted to answer them. And if I can't actually answer them, you know what, I'll actually get a guest in to do just that for you. And if you've been listening to any of the previous few episodes, you'll be aware that I have had a slight issue with British Gas. And so you can tune in to the latest episodes and happenings of British Gasgate, as I'm calling it. And finally, we're going to look forward to the next episode of Property on Fire. So without further ado, let's get started. But before we do, please do like, review and subscribe to this podcast and come with me on this property journey. In the last episode, which was 23, I had a nice long chat with Neil Briggs, who hails from Milton Keynes. These chats I have are very informal, and to be honest, I never know in advance which way they're going to go. On this occasion, the main topic that we chatted about was raising funding for your project, whether that's a flip of a property, an HMO, or a larger development. We all need funds at times. And so it really is a case of know, like, and trust both ways. Now, I always invite any investors to do their own due diligence on me. And one easy way to do that is to put into Google, let's say Ian Wormsley fraud, and see what comes up. Mud sticks in property, so it's very important that I personally treat all our investors ethically and indeed how I would expect to be treated myself. I wish I had done that personally on a former person who was trying to get involved with one of my developments very early on. To be honest, it almost risked the purchase of a building. As I always say on this podcast, as with anything in life, you learn from your mistakes. And trust me, I make mistakes, but I try and learn from every single one of them. And it's not just money. You ought to do due diligence on, for example, anyone that mentors you. You know, with my mentees, Just like my investors who get involved with leading homes and our developments, I encourage you, I really do, to check me out because I've got nothing to hide. Just do that due diligence on your mentors or whoever's given you guidance. Just check them out. Just make sure they are actually walking the walk and not just talking the talk. And that goes for courses as well. Just check them out. If they're sort of half-decent people, they really will not mind you checking them out. If they resist, then perhaps that does raise a few alarm bells and perhaps you ought to tread just a little bit careful. Back to investing with others. This week, unfortunately, it looks like a large investment company has gone under. And you may well have seen this on WhatsApp groups and forums. To be honest, it's the sort of news actually I don't like really talking about because I'm hoping this would never happen 
but I'm afraid it does happen and it happens time and time again where people lend money and then they struggle to get it back. In this case, it was a company called JVIP or to give them their full title, Joint Ventures in Property. According to all the reports I've got, it has gone into liquidation owing investors an awful lot of money. I'm hearing tragic stories of individuals having put their life savings into this company and up out of pocket by hundreds of thousands of pounds. Although I wasn't in the sort of Zoom meeting that was held, insolvency practitioner Michael Chamberlain said this week at a creditors meeting, according to reports as I say, that JVIP's assets were 43 million. That yeah, sounds reasonable. However, lending from individual companies and pensions was £60 million. That gives a deficit of £17 million. And the question is, where's that money going to come from? I doubt very much that the directors of these companies are actually going to have the assets to repay it with personal guarantees. So where's it going to come from? Or is it? If you frequent PIN meetings, then you'll probably have heard this company as father and son Peter and Dick Dabner went through the mastermind program with Simon Zucci there a couple of times and were regular members and attendees of the PIN meetings. I really, really hope for the sake of those investors, many of whom could really do with that cash back or, or even just the interest which apparently was stopped two or three months ago for their own lives and families and that they can just resolve something. But with this massive, massive gap appearing, I'm afraid it's not looking too promising for everyone. Even this week, I've heard reports that Crowd Property, the crowdfunding platform, has repossessed some of the sites that they were involved in that were funded jointly or run by JVIP. Being a good journalist type person, I did try and reach out to the directors, but as of the time of this recording, I haven't actually had a reply. If I do, then obviously I will pass that on. It really is a tragic situation and quite genuinely I do feel for all those investors. So please, 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 if you're looking to invest with anyone, whether it's myself at Leading Homes or with someone else, you heard speak at perhaps at a property event. Do your due diligence on them. Now that also applies even if they are a good friend or even a relative. How do you know that that deal stacks? How do you know that deal is good and kosher unless you do a little bit of due diligence and can know, like and trust that person? You can't. You need to check things out. So please, please, please do it. Now, if you missed the last episode with Neil Briggs talking about raising finance, I implore you to go and have a listen to it. Now, that's episode 23. Moving on, and yesterday, in fact, the day before I actually recorded this episode, I was at a property event, and during one of the breaks, a lady walked past me and asked me how British gas was going. Okay, I would say here that it's gripped the nation, but that might be a slight exaggeration, but um, but there we go. Last week, or in the last episode, I spoke about receiving a number of checks, and I've still got them here on my desk. Those checks were as little as 55 pence. 
crazy. But at the time, I was hoping that I was getting towards the end. Emails had started to come in, which sounded hopeful. But no. No, 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 no. It's not quite as simple as that, is it? I have now had an email saying that I've tried to install a smart meter at my own home, at my private address, and couldn't. Surprise, surprise. I'm not a customer here at British Gas. So why? Why come here? It ain't going to work, British Gas. And then yesterday, the postman, bless him, he delivered me a letter from British Gas. I can always tell British Gas letters. I've got to recognise the form that they come in. The letter informed me that one of my tenants in flat seven had moved out and I should start paying the bill again and they're going to put me on to their variable rate, which is probably going to go up in April, but that's another story. That particular flat I actually sold on the 1st of April last year. Probably serves me right for selling it on April Fool's Day, but I did. But it does beg the question, which of the other flats do British Gas think I've just let and not sold. These are sold, British Gas. They're sold. They don't belong to me anymore. They're not mine. I'm not responsible for the bills. Please, go and bill somebody else. It's not me. I mean, you really, really couldn't make this up, could you? It's crazy. It's, it's not rocket science. Anyway, tune in next week for the next thrilling update on the British Gas Gate. This is Property on Fire with Ian Walmsley. And now, Ian's A to Z of property. Okay, the subject this week in Ian's A to Z of property is adverse possession. So what is it and can you take advantage of it? So let's have a brief dive in to adverse possession. Although we call it adverse possession, you may indeed know it more as squatter's rights. This is actually enshrined in English law and has actually been in English law for many, many years and goes all the way back to the time of the Romans. So it's nothing new, as with any law and act. Um, it's been around for quite a long time. However, there have been over the last uh, decade or so some important changes to adverse possession. And this surrounds mainly registered land. Prior to 2002, then you could, after a period of, say, 12 years, claim to have taken over that land. Now, whether that was registered land or unregistered land. However, in 2002, the law changed. And as a result of that, after a period of 10 years, then land registry would write to the owners of that registered land and informed them that um, a claim had been made to that land. Now, if after a further period of two years, you could then take adverse possession of that land. Obviously, in that period of two years, once being informed, one would hope that the landowner would suddenly realise that someone's trying to get control of their land and do something about it. However, with unregistered land, that is slightly different. Quite simply, if after a period of 12 years, you have been running that land, using that land, divided that land off and controlled that land, then after a period of 12 years, you can then claim adverse possession. As I said previously, prior to the Land Registration Act of 2002 coming in, adverse possession was fairly straightforward. 
But since that act came into effect, then there have been a few changes and there are a few requirements that you need to make sure that you actually undertake before you can try and claim adverse possession. I guess the two main ones is that you must definitely use the land. You can't just sort of store perhaps a wheelbarrow um, or even graze a few horses or cows or goats or whatever they may be on the land and then claim it you need to actually show some intention to actually possess the land. This has actually been proven in case law over recent years. One other important factor is the fact that you can't have the owner's consent at any point. Whilst this may sound very basic, you need to make sure that you haven't perhaps had it in the past. For example, if the farmer has said at some point, oh yes, Mrs. Brown, you can just go ahead and use my field for whatever you want. And perhaps, you know, even if that farm has passed away, you know, you can't then claim adverse possession after a period of time because Farmer Joe or Farmer Giles, whoever they may be, has actually forgotten about it or or cannot reclaim that land. As I said, it is a period of 12 years and it's quite important that that 12 years is continuous. So let's face it, for example, um, if somebody had uh, moved their fence, for example, had extended their garden um, into a field, and it does happen, after a period of 12 years, then they can try and actually claim adverse possession, especially if that land has been unregistered. And that is probably the easiest route that where, where it's going to happen. As I say, if it's registered land, there's a few more hoops to actually jump through and the current landowner is informed. However, there is a large chunk of the UK that is actually unregistered. I believe it's something like about 12 to 15% of land is actually still unregistered. So perhaps you own land that isn't registered, then maybe you ought to register that land just in case adverse possession does actually take place. Should you actually wish to claim adverse possession, then you'll fill in a what's called an FR1 form with land registry to actually register that land for the first time. Even if you try and claim adverse possession via that form, it's not quite as simple as the fact that that land suddenly becomes yours not 100%. So you can't actually then go perhaps and sell that land. What actually happens at that point is you're given what is called possessory title. And you're given this either on adverse possession, a claim of adverse possession, or where land is registered for the first time and the original deeds have been lost or destroyed. If you're actually given a possessory title, then after a further period of 12 years, an application can be made again to land reg- registry to upgrade that title to an absolute title. Whilst I'm not a mortgage expert, my understanding is that mortgage companies are very reluctant to lend against a possessory title, especially where that has been gained by adverse possession. So you may well find if you're trying to sell a property that has gained additional land via adverse possession you may need to wait for a further period of 12 years before you can actually make that a full title so i'm afraid that adverse possession is not quite as straightforward and simple as some people will will lead you to believe it is a procedure 
that can take up to 24 years, if not more, to actually fully become yours so that you can do whatever you like with it, sell that land or whatever. Could it work for you? Maybe. If you're already well down that process and you've been wondering as to what to do with that land that, hey, you may have inherited. It's not necessarily you've that created that uh, sort of taken that land. You, you may well have come into your family. Well, if it has, then there is a procedure that you can actually go through, especially if it is unregistered land. As I said earlier, if it's re- registered land, then that's a little bit more complicated. And if you're going to do this, then I would strongly suggest talking to a solicitor who understands adverse possession, possessory titles and everything else and can actually guide you correctly. So as a final disclaimer, check with people who know what they're talking about. I always say one of my phrases is the right people at the right price at the right time. And I think adverse possession is one of those things. On to a couple of questions that I've been sent in and if you've got a question that you would like me to answer or indeed you'd like me to get a guest in to answer then please send me an email at ian at propertyonfire.co.uk or you can send me a message via the Property on Fire website or send me a WhatsApp, send me a Facebook message, send me, send me a pigeon post if you can. I really don't mind. Whichever method you would like to communicate with me, then please send it to me. Now, if for some reason you do not hear back straight away thanking you for that message, then please just send me a quick reminder. Just make sure I've actually received that message because I do get an awful lot of inquiries from various people on various things and I would hate to actually miss that message that you'd actually sent me. The first email that I've had this week actually comes from Connor. And he asks, it's regarding an Article 4. Does it actually prevent me from putting a property into SA, service accommodation? I know an Article 4 blocks an HMO, but I can't remember if it actually blocks service accommodation as well. First off, Connor, thank you very much for your email. I'm more than happy to answer that for you. First of all, an Article 4. We need to understand what an Article 4 does and perhaps doesn't do. An Article 4 will block or prevent something from happening to either your property or a number of properties in your area. It does not necessarily mean that an Article 4 will block HMO. So that's the first thing we have to understand. It may block, for example, office to resi conversions it may block extensions it could block all sorts of things and it's quite important to actually work out what that article 4 actually prevents now that article 4 could actually apply to one particular property it's not necessarily a whole area it could just be the one or it could be a street or it could be a whole city an article 4 will vary and you really need to check out And in fact, your area may well have more than one Article 4. You may well find that your property is subject to more than one Article 4. So check, check on the local authority's website. Just do it. You can do a search, sort of Google it, Article 4 in quotes, and then your local authority. And hopefully, fingers crossed, Google will send you in the right direction. So have a look, download the Article 4s, 
There may well be a map that you can look at just to make sure that your road or your property is or isn't affected. Once you've established that, does it prevent service accommodation? Highly unlikely. Now, the reason I say that is that one of the problems we have with service accommodation is the fact, and I've probably mentioned this before on Property on Fire, is the fact that service accommodation is not mentioned in the use class order. Now, normally what that will mean is, by default, that use class is actually sui generis, a type of its own, one of a kind. However, that is not always the case. And this is where it does get rather, rather confusing. And I just wish, I wish the government would just sort this out. I know I've had a minor rant on this in the past, but I really wish that last year when, when they messed around with the use class order, we'd actually given something to service accommodation, but unfortunately they didn't. So some local authorities will treat service accommodation as holiday lets, i.e. C1. Some will treat them as C3 and some will treat them as sui generis. And unfortunately, I don't know which your local authority does. So I can't actually tell you now which, which yours would. So does Article 4 stop service accommodation? Highly unlikely. It is probably going to be something specific like HMOs, like conversion from office to resi. So you need to check on that. And as long as that doesn't prevent, say, holiday lets in that Article 4, then, yeah, you should be fine and you should be fine in that. Now, I never, never really advise contacting the local authority to ask some questions about planning. And I know that sounds a really weird thing, Connor, but it's something that I actually do not encourage. And the reason I don't encourage it personally is because it is very easy to get that virtual flag raised against your property by all means go to the local authority and say oh i've seen this article four and this article four is called westwood borough whatever it is called go to the local authority and ask them does this article four in westwood borough affect service accommodation can you please confirm that in writing? So you're not actually naming your property, you're not naming your street, anything like that. You're just asking them on the overall area, Westwood Borough, whatever it might be called, as to whether or not that affects it. And that is how I would ask the local authority. I wouldn't say, I live at my properties at number 15, Acacia Avenue. Can I do service accommodation? I really wouldn't advise that at all for various reasons so connor i hope that helps simple answer probably not the second inquiry this week comes from max and max has asked me and it's not a planning question this week but max has asked me about direct to vendor letters and if i've got any suggestions on how to do this okay max well yeah, I do have a few thoughts and I probably will return to this in a future episode with more information. Whatever you do, try and do what is called split testing. Now, first of all, if you're going to do a split testing and what that means is you may send a number of letters in perhaps bright yellow envelopes. You may send a number of letters that are handwritten or appear to be handwritten. You may send a few that are more formal. Whatever you do, try and track whatever method you're actually using for that. Because the problem is, how do you actually know 
if your responses have come from whichever type of testing you actually carried out, Max. The one way that I personally do this is I actually get a different phone number and therefore it is very easy. So if I was doing, and I have done this in the past, I've actually put adverts into local newspapers. I've put adverts into shops, that sort of thing to actually promote my wishes and desires, whatever that might be. And potentially I could do the same now for writing to landowners and property owners. And by having a different phone number on different letters, it means that I know that if the phone number that ends in 01 is called, then that was a handwritten letter. If the phone number called ends in 02, then perhaps I know that the letter went in a bright yellow envelope with handwritten and it looked very informal, like a gift card or whatever. So I can actually tell quite simply by the number of phone calls that come in as to which method has been used or which advert has been shown or which advert has been seen by the person making the call. You can also do this via email. So if they email you, you could have a slightly different email address for each advert or each type of letter that you send out. But as I said, Max, I will probably come back to this in the future episode because I do have, over the years, a method that I have personally run and run it successfully. I'll be more than happy, Max, to cover that in a future episode. But all I'll say now, just track and trace everything that you actually do as far as advertising is concerned so that you know what works and potentially what doesn't work because you probably don't wish to repeat and waste money on those elements that do not work. So I hope that makes sense, Max. And if you need any further clarification before I do the longer episode on this, then please do send me another message and I'll be more than happy, Max, to help you out as I will anybody else listening. Well, I hope you've enjoyed this week's episode of Property on Fire. And if you have, why not tell somebody else? Why not spread the word about Property on Fire? would really, really appreciate it. And as I said earlier, please do like and review and subscribe to this podcast. So what's coming up in the next episode of Property on Fire? Well, you can listen in with me to a chat that I'm having with Toyin Ayandara. And I know that this will be a thoroughly good chat. So why not join me in the next episode of Property on Fire? And if I can help you in your property journey in 2022, then please do get in touch. As I always say, keep safe and we'll chat again in the next episode. Have a wonderful week. Property on Fire with Ian Walmsley. Please use your podcast app to rate, review and subscribe to the show. And if you'd like a question answered on a future episode, email ian at propertyonfire.co.uk.